The FinTech Podcast is sponsored by True North, the leader in driving FinTech forward. True North builds end-to-end platforms, web and mobile applications for companies within the FinTech industry. You can find True North at www.truenorth.co. Today's podcast is hosted by True North's co-founder and president, Brian Sampson. Welcome everyone to the FinTech Podcast sponsored by True North. We are really excited today to have uh, what I consider a true fintech dream team on our podcast today. We have Lane Campbell and Josh Burrell, the co-founders, managing principals of Activated Capital. Lane has an engineering background and Josh comes to us from the finance world. Now, I know our audience is really interested to hear about what you guys have built over at Activated Capital. But I'd like to jump in uh, first and really learn more about the journey uh, that led to this point. And we can start with Lane first. Lane, it'd be really great if you could uh, tell us a little more about uh, where you grew up. Sure. I've grown up all over, actually. Originally born in New Jersey, but I'll have moved about 20 times in the last 33 years. So. I graduated elementary school twice, even uh, once in fifth grade, <laughs> once in sixth grade. <laughs> so I was in Chicago for about eight years, moving around to different parts of the city and uh, enjoyed my time there. I was out in California for about two years and moved to New York from San Francisco towards the end of last year. I met Josh, I think, a couple of years before that. We began chatting about our fund strategy and began working together on some other things back then. It's a lot of different places, and I'm sure it's given you some really interesting perspectives. Yeah, you know, when I was a child, I, I really disliked it. You know, you always get uh, thrown into different scenarios, different people. Yeah, but as an adult, it's made me pretty adaptable. <laughs> sure, sure. So when, when you were growing up, Lane, um, you know, what, what were some things you were really into, like, like hobbies and, and things that, that really, uh, you know, you, you gravitated towards? I was always into technology as far back as I can remember. I got a Game Boy, I think, when I was about three years old, and I was taking it apart and putting it back together, um, and I was building computers when I was about 12, 13. I got into mostly technical uh, hobbies when I was a kid, rocketry and things of that nature. Very cool. And how about your parents? What were their occupations, and do you think they had any impact on you know what led that technical inspiration? My dad was uh, head of marketing for very large companies. As a kid, it was a lot of fun. He was uh, head of marketing for KB Toys for a little while, back when that was a growing company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember KB, sure. Yeah, and that was fun. But um, my, uh, my dad was the reason we moved around a lot. He'd get a new big corporate job every year or two. Okay, right on. So, um, so obviously you, you had this inclination towards tech, even as a youngster, um, maybe you could talk a little more about, you know, how that, you know, nurtured that engineering journey and, you know, what, what really led you down that path to, uh, to study it in school. So I went to school for engineering, but I ended up dropping out to build a phone company. I made most of my friends in the engineering program by helping them with their technology projects. Frankly, I'm, I'm an autodidict and a bit of an anti-authoritarian, so standardized education was never a very good fit for me. But um, I went to school at the University of Cincinnati, and I moved from the Cincinnati to Chicago because it was the closest big city, and our phone company was starting to get some traction. 
And this was about the time of the recession. Everyone was trying to save money on their phone company. Right on, right on. Nolene, you've had um, a really interesting path and, and quite a few success stories in your background. And I was hoping uh, you could give a little insight for the audience on um, you know, some of those companies and you know, what those business models were and, and, and your role in all of those. Sure. I started my career as a pretty quiet guy who didn't really like to talk to people. But over time, I learned how to open up and gained more confidence in my ability to communicate. And so uh, I spent the first few years of the phone company sort of behind the scenes. And we actually had a CEO come in to run the business. And I ended up uh, selling my shares in the company to him, exited that business, and went on and founded my own company to build data centers and call centers. And uh, we were pretty successful. We were ranked as one of the 250 fastest growing tech companies in, in the country two years in a row. Wow. I sold that off to an international firm. Uh, while I was running that, I started an online cloud backup service, and that ended up getting acquired by the same company. And uh, I started an IT staffing business and a uh, an online publication, and I, I exited uh, five companies so far in my career, uh, most of them small. You know, we, we didn't take outside money or anything like that. But uh, it was a great experience overall. Um, I learned a lot, got into helping other entrepreneurs through my experiences. And when I, I did most of these in Chicago, mm-hmm. and Chicago didn't have a very vibrant startup community. There weren't mentors. There wasn't a Founders Institute. Technori didn't exist, which if you're mm-hmm. in Chicago, you know about Technori. So I, I was one of the, the entrepreneurs that was around as Technori was getting started and helped them set up at Chase Auditorium every you know month when they were doing their pitch and um, still friends with Seth and Scott today uh, they do great things for Chicago you know the risk appetite is a little bit different in the Midwest too absolutely and you know it, it's also part of what got me into real estate while I was helping all of these companies and being a mentor to so many I ended up starting to help uh, an entrepreneur ended up co-owning a brokerage and a property management company with one out in the Midwest and um, developed a real passion for what real estate can do for you know working class families and clean, safe homes. And, and also what a great investment opportunity it was for people looking for asset-backed returns. Sure, sure. And Lane, you know, you, you had touched on a little bit about you know, mentoring and advising, you know, and that, that whole ecosystem. And when you were building these companies, did you have uh, advisors and mentors that you sought or, uh, or you know, really helped uh, bring you along? No, there, that didn't exist in those days. And, and true to Chicago nature, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail because I want to respect the people who, uh, you know, have been a part of my path and my journey. But, you know, there were people that, that saw young entrepreneurial talent and tried to help, but um, did it in a way that was, I'd say, a little more Chicago than than California. So it wasn't a good fit. We never ended up working together. But um, Chicago is a beautiful city. It is a clean city. It has an abundance of talent. The first web browser was developed around there. Uh, you've got Ruby on Rails coming out of there. Adrian Holovolty from the Django Project was there for a number of years. I think he's moved on. You just have this incredible talent base of technological people. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of risk aversion to how capital is utilized. And it's producing great returns for investors. But you're also not finding that many companies changing the world coming out of there. 
Yeah, it's probably more of a singles and doubles environment than uh, than the Grand Slam home runs and strikeouts. Um, now, now, how about on the flip side? You know, as I was uh, talking to you the other day, and you know, looking more at your background, uh, you've done a lot of mentoring and advising yourself, um, and I'm sure you get all kinds of requests and you know, people seeking your help. What do you typically look for? You know, when you're trying to find the right type of environment or uh, you know relationship to you know help other companies and allocate uh, your time. I think I don't really dive into advisory work these days as much as I have in the past. You know, at its peak, I would help five new entrepreneurs every day, at least five days a week. Yeah. Uh, I helped over 1,200 different entrepreneurs. I've met a lot of people, and I would I would call it the world's best MBA, right? And so uh, that that was really a benefit, but I, I did it because I liked helping people and I still like helping people, but I don't have the bandwidth to be an advisor to everyone and I'm sure, pretty right. selective and I'll be honest too, it comes with a reputational you know, liability. So if you, you put your name on something, you better know the team, you better believe in them because when it comes down to it, like a lot of these companies that meet you the first day and want you to be an advisor, you, you got to be careful, got to get to know people before you do business with them. Sure. And, and speaking of learning, is there anything that maybe comes to mind as like a takeaway that's really helped you today? Yeah, I think um, people, you know, look at business opportunities um, and don't always look at the people around them. And I think people are the most important part of any business. And uh, my biggest takeaway over time has been you can have the best technology. You can spend years at it, but who's going to sell it, right? <laughs> you have to have multiple <laughs> pieces that come together to build a business. And so, you know, I, I encourage entrepreneurs to try new things, to make mistakes, but, you know, try to do it on your own dime and not in, on an investor's dime to get started. And then I recommend, you know, looking for investment when you have something that works and you want to take it to scale. Sure, sure. Good advice. Uh, Josh, thanks for waiting patiently. We're, we're excited to learn about you too. Um, if you don't mind uh, answering some of the, these same questions, you know, starting with uh, with where you grew up. Yeah, so, you know, a little bit different story, but I also grew up in the Midwest, uh, St. Louis, and moved around a little bit, uh, Michigan and Kansas City, you know, just typical Midwest bringing uh, third generation uh, construction developer and single family homes. So, you know, I was on the back of a, a grading machine, you know, by the time I was uh, able to walk and climbing up ladders before I was, um, you know, able to walk from what I've been told. So it was definitely unique in that sense of just always being around uh, construction projects. Sure. And were, were both your parents in the construction industry? No, it was just uh, my father and grandfather. And then my mother was um, worked for a utility company. And yeah, so, I mean, she was you know, more so um, in the, the corporate realm as opposed to the, you know, renovation and um, the real estate piece. Sure, sure. And do you see the, all that experience in construction, did that, did that really impact, um, you know, your, your career path? Um, I mean, it's funny. So, you know, I was excelling or, or doing better in math, you know, at the time as I was, you know, a teenager and going into high school and thinking about college. And we were on a, a project and it was kind of a defining moment on, um, 
you know, we were literally uh, trying to get 90 degree angles on a, um, a balcony and, and, you know, my father was explaining it to me. He's just like, you know, that's, this is how you do it. And, you know, we call it the three, four, five method. And, you know, I'm like, well, that's Pythagorean theorem. And he's like, what? And I'm like, you know, that's a mathematical equation on how you would find a, a 90 degree angle. And he's just like, we call it the three, four, five method. So um, <laughs> essentially at that point, it was to the point where he was saying, you may not be in construction. Um, I graduated from high school two years early, went to college, finance and accounting undergrad, and then moved to New York. So it was, um, and I started my career at, at Moody's Investor Services, uh, underwriting commercial mortgage-backed bonds and, and uh, residential mortgage-backed bonds. So yeah, I mean, it definitely had an influence um, in that sense of, I, I really am passionate about understanding how the, the projects and everything work, but probably more passionate about the math. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, tell us a little more about what you were doing at Moody's. Yeah, so I started my career um, in the analyst program where it's essentially a two-year rotation where if you were to go through this, it's pretty typical in investment banks, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Moody's all have either, let's say, two to three year rotation. And you get to see a lot of different um, seats and wear a lot of different hats and kind of go wherever you, you feel is the best fit or potentially go back to get your MBA. I worked really hard, you know, coming from the Midwest, you know, just honest, hardworking, trying to, you know, do as much as possible. Within after one year, my boss was like, you know, come on into my office. And I was like, okay, where are we grabbing a turkey sandwich? This is in New York City. And, um, you know, he was like, I want you to move to Hong Kong and Singapore next week. And I said, can we can we still get the sandwich? I'm quite hungry. But, um, you know, so that that's where it was. It was pretty atypical for someone pretty much fresh out of school, undergrad. Yeah. Uh, it was not an expected or even a typical route generally. So yeah, I was on a nonstop flight to Singapore. Um, I didn't want to leave the plane. It was 18 hours. I, business class, this was the, the most uh, exotic type of travel that I've ever taken, especially in yeah, Asia. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I was in Hong Kong and Singapore for just over a year. I came back to New York for about a week. And my boss, you know, had the same conversation. And, um, you know, within probably a month thereafter, I lived in London and Paris for almost uh, just over two years. Um, so all in around uh, just about three years overseas, um, you know, working with Moody's, evaluating businesses, but from a, a debt perspective. And, you know, that really, I think, has driven a lot of what we do now, too, just on understanding and really mitigating a lot of the risk and, and knowing where the potential pitfalls could be. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. There's so much different education and um, you know different credit courses that you could take while you are you know with that type of firm, and just to get the experience and cultural differences in so many different countries, and understanding the nuances of the accounting and tax laws, and all of those fun things. Yeah, I was going to ask with with such a you know a global exposure that you had, uh, if you could maybe comment on. Um, the different perspectives uh, you might have seen from, you know, the, these three totally different continents in, in Europe and, and the States and Asia. I mean, you know, where do you begin, right? I mean, it's, it's so different, especially from the Midwest. If you were to compare, I think New York and the coast are really a bit their own 
unique animals themselves. And then Midwest would be a very different culture within that self. But yeah, I mean, Asia, you know, looking at it from a business lens, I guess, first is that they just do things very differently from a regulatory perspective and meaning they don't have many in terms of safety rules. They, a lot of bamboo is used for scaffolding as well as um, structural where we would use rebar and steel here, you see um, bamboo and foundations there. Right. That is surprisingly and a bit terrifying. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's just the nature. And, you know, not to paint it with a brush, I'm sure lots of steel gets in, embedded in, in many of them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's different. It was always a great experience, though. Everyone, you know, just trying to travel around and be polite and, learn as much as possible, but uh, it was it was really good. I mean, from an, traveled all around Asia, understanding hopefully more of the culture and how business operates. I mean, Singapore, there's a lot of startup businesses. Uh, Shenzhen, there's um, a lot of different technology. Um, so just trying to really understand how things work, um, no matter where you are, is, uh, was always important. And then, and then, yeah, in London and Paris, it, it's just, again, very different a little bit more relationship driven than maybe I guess transaction driven as you know we are can be sometimes in the states and you know there's a lot of value to that where you have that relationship and maybe that's another thing that we you know care about at activated capital and, and really think highly of is is more of the, the the character of the people and Lane alluded to that a bit earlier but um, you know that that really has had an impact, I think, on where we see ourselves moving forward too. And, you know, regulatory and all of the different nuances are, are very different there too. So, you know, just trying to dive into the weeds, having a finance and accounting background significantly helped. Absolutely. Went through the CFA program, went through, you know, the Harvard real estate program. So, I mean, that, that also uh, added some value there too. Great. So, so two well-traveled guys from the Midwest, um, uh, how, how did, Tell us uh, how you guys met. Through a mutual friend in, um, I think it was in St. Louis. He was, he still lives in St. Louis. And he introduced us and he said, you guys should certainly meet. And I think we had, we did. And there was really nothing, um, you know, from a business perspective that we could do that day. But we're like, you know, we should definitely keep this conversation and keep, you know, the lines of communication open. And, and that's what we did. And then what was it, a year or so down the road or a couple of years? It was, uh, yeah. yeah. It's funny when you start working with people and you just start, you know, shooting ideas around or, or working on a project together, you learn when people hold themselves accountable, when they want to move things forward and they want to see results and uh, people who just kind of, you know, drag themselves along. And uh, I think we both liked that both of us were very motivated uh, people. We, we kind of, have uh, shared, you know, as you noted, background traveling a lot and being exposed to different things. But we saw that, uh, you know, this, these opportunity zone legislation combined with the experiences we'd had in real estate in these areas, uh, you know, it brought us together. So, so tell us a little more about um, about what activated capital is and and um, you know the problem you're solving or the opportunity you saw that that you know others weren't capitalizing on. So. I guess at a high level, you know, just to explain opportunity zones and then maybe dive into, you know, what problem we're solving is, you know, many don't know that this piece of legislation is actually can be 
quite transformative and, and we feel very powerful just at a, a high level. But it was embedded in the Tax and Jobs Cut Act and um, passed in December 22, 2017. At my prior role, we had two hotels in these now what you call opportunity zones. And we just thought they were good investments. They were emerging communities. There were 350 startups in the tech innovation district. Microsoft just built the regional headquarters. I mean, there was a lot of different just fundamental factors that made it a good investment. And then this legislation came out where if an investor were to sell a stock, bond, or business, and then roll just the gain portion into a qualifying opportunity zone fund, they can avoid the tax or defer it at a minimum. And then any return that you receive from that underlying investment in real estate and operating businesses, that if you were to hold it for 10 years, you get an exemption from any capital gain. What many don't know is these Opportunity Zone census tracts are half of our nation. So literally almost 40% of the U.S. could be classified as a qualified Opportunity Zone census track. And then from there, we've really dug into the weeds on there's 8,700 different tracks across, across the nation. So when you think about that, it's just there's a huge amount of you know, wealth and inequality that everyone knows about, but now it's making it explicitly clear that, you know, there's certain communities that are, are just not um, having to see that gain that everyone is talking about. And, you know, we can talk about the market cycle later, but it's a very bifurcated, a very split economy in the sense of some communities are still in, let's say, 2009, 2010 type prices. Mm-hmm. Um and it's still, this is, you know, in the same country in which we live in. But, you know, really that, that was what Lane and I, when we looked at this and said, you know, now that this legislation came out and we have a, a really strong and firm understanding, there's a, a, a big niche where, and there's different rules and regulations that, you know, may be too long to go into. But we found that the Midwest is already a good investment and it just, it really meets this criteria quite well where, I would say most other funds in the market, um, you know, would have to be ground up construction and, and that takes on more risk. And we can go into that if you would like on how we feel that we are taking a double bottom line approach where we want to have the strongest financial return, but then also the, the strongest financial social impact. Uh, so we've trademarked an opportunity zone scorecard and report on if this is going to be, you know, and how transformative of a change that we will want. So that's where you're talking about where, you know, we've wanted to create is, is that we don't want these low income census tracts just to be moving two miles, three miles outside of where they are now, right? So 40% of our nation are in low income census tracts. Oh, great. You know, you can deploy capital into these markets, increase the prices of the rent and investors are very happy and that, that's wonderful. But, you know, ultimately, it's just community displacement, gentrification, whatever you would like to call it, where if you don't have a transformative impact, it's just kicking the can or or making these income census tracts further outside and and potentially making it worse because the infrastructure is not there. So what we are implementing is a rent-to-own model where we will be able to offer all of the the tenants in um, any of our pieces of real estate the opportunity to own their own home, to have that that activation, that spark, where to get out of the perpetual renting cycle 
and um, you know have that equity built into their model. Now, you know that's something that we've created. You know, financial modules and different things that we've helped just to try to help with financial literacy. Um, but one out of every five Americans have a credit score under 600 points. So helping understand what credit metrics it takes in order to get a loan and and those sort of things. I think you know, and we just want to be transformative and, you know, we keep saying that word, but we want to have an impact and we want to be able to measure on it in order it to be successful from a financial and social return. Sure. And, and uh, you know, where do you see this, um, you know, down the road, like uh, fast forward five years, where, where do you guys want to get to? Yeah. So that's where, you know, we're really, it keeps us up at night a lot of, is to the social piece. We're really comfortable and, you know, laser focused on both but the real estate is is just the numbers and the numbers they make sense uh, when you when we talk into buying into distressed and this is what we're familiar with and what we've been doing our entire careers um, but the social piece is where having the rent to own model historically has not worked and there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't and a lot of it has been because of predatory practices from the landlord um, just trying to take advantage of tenants who are, are not really understanding what they're signing and not really explaining what exactly that means in order to have the option to buy and what it takes in order to get to those steps. So, you know, and we want to have a quantifiable way to answer your question in five years. So one out of 10 rent to own um, modules become successful. So let, let's just say if 10 tenants have a rent to own option, lease option, one will be successful. And it's a lot just due to those things that I just discussed. I mean, it's predatory just taking people's money without giving them the, you know, the, the best practices and the, the really the aid of what they need to get to where they need to be. So at a minimum, we would like to double that number, if not triple it, and to say three, four, um, years time that we would say that two to three out of the 10 will have that level of rentership. Now they can potentially have that option to purchase. Now in three to four years time, they would have built enough equity up in their home to put, let's say $500 down and they would have access to a, a loan. So that's something that we would like to report on and also the number of jobs created in, in certain areas and markets. And that's going to be, you know, how do you mitigate community displacement? And it's, it's also having sustainable jobs. And that's that's important. Yeah. One of the things that's beautiful about Midwestern investment that, I, you know, Josh kind of opened my eyes to, and I'm sure others would find interesting is uh, you know, for every $3 million you seem invested in a Midwestern hotel, you create about 150 sustainable jobs. That's a big number. You know, when you talk about uh, creating jobs and having real impacts in communities, a part of our strategy is we want to create homeownership. We want to create stronger communities. Where do we see ourselves in the next four to five years? It's doing that, but it's also creating stronger communities through employment. And that's what hotels help with as well. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Josh. You, you mentioned something earlier about a about a scorecard that you had trademarked. If you could could speak to that a little bit, it's a, it's a bit of a derivation from my Moody's days. But a, everything is quantifiable at Moody's, and everything is measured in terms of ratings. And you know, each company has a, a rating one to five. And you know, even internally, there was ratings on uh, you know the jobs within the company. So 
having to to measure the impact that just resonated where we would have three main factors and then we would have sub factors within that but we want to make it simple enough that we can explain it but then also make it complex enough that it is able to differentiate different projects from another so we get tons of emails now with opportunity zones in our uh, email ticker and um, having websites i don't know we've probably gotten 20 projects right now when we've been on this call but you know how to differentiate or how do you quantify and really separate and parse out what would be a financial return as well as a social return and, and how do you marry those two because historically in, in my investing career um, and just talking about my job um, you know outside of Moody's at Colonial Consulting so I managed money for foundations and endowments and always had a, a financial impact but very much a social impact too and and most people think of social as is you're giving up something financially and historically that has been the case um, we like to think that in this model the activated capital the social piece enhances the financial return it doesn't detract from it so by having a rent to own model your tenants are aligned they take better care there's less maintenance cost by selling it back to the tenant you're saving six ten maybe more in terms of marketing cost right uh, so there's alignment there, not a detraction. Um, and you get better favorable financing. And when you create jobs and there's different programs that you are, uh, have that ability to, that any other fund I think in the market may not have that access. So back to the double bottom line, it's, it's a value add to have the social piece, not a detraction, which we feel is rare. And we want to be able to measure that social piece. And that's where the OZ scorecard came in. I really like uh, the vision you guys have that it, it doesn't have to be a trade-off, you know, that there, there's really an enhancement. That, that's really, uh, really great. Um, and, you know, Lane, when we spoke originally, uh, you had referenced uh, an opportunity for tokenization. If you could speak really? to that. Yeah, I mean, what's beautiful about tokenization is that the technology is basically off the shelf at this point, right? It's there, There's nothing that we have to go out and invent here. It's just the, the regulatory hurdles, and then it's about aligning it properly. With an Opportunity Zone fund, uh, we are already creating liquidity for investors uh, that you know come with a lot of these benefits that you, you, you would lose if you were to uh, trade your token or exchange your token or sell it or however you want to phrase it before um, you know, the, the timeline, the time horizons that are set by the legislation. So it's something we've you know gone back and forth on, and and really we we are kind of looking at doing a uh, liquidity fund around tokenization this year. It probably won't be based around opportunity zones because the legislation just doesn't really align well with what the technology provides as value. From my perspective, when you look at investments that typically have long hold periods to see any type of liquidity. That's where security tokens and tokenization in general really offer benefits. So in the case of like venture investing, it's notorious for long lockup periods where, you know, the, the portfolio is seeing mark-to-mark uh, -market val validation that the portfolio companies are growing and your investment is growing, but you have no way to achieve liquidity till those companies start exiting. So one of the things a liquidity fund offers, you know, for especially for like a venture side of, of a business, would be liquidity in the form of um, being able to sell token before there's a liquidity event with the fund itself uh, and and be interested in taking it out. And so that's that's where we see 
um, one of the big benefits of tokenization today. I think that's great. And has has that impacted um, the type of investors that you guys have sought out and, and maybe where they're located? Well, it has and it has. So one of the first funds that wanted to come in to us um, is actually a crypto fund and they're attracted to our perspective on this and they're actually interested in, in the uh, double bottom line returns as well. So uh, they've been a big proponent and helpful on this. That's great. And then um, if you guys could speak a little more about, um, you know, the opportunities you see to incorporate technology into your business. I mean, it's throughout, right? I mean, it's real estate is such a, let's say, antiquated business in the sense of there's still pen and paper used in a lot of places. And especially in the Midwest, that technology, you know, talking about transformative change is is can be incredible um, at a operating level, at a financial fund level, at an exit, um, at a, an investor level. There's just there's so many different ways that technology can really create so many different synergies, just keeping up to date, having technology. You don't necessarily have to be on site all day, every day in order to have an investment where if you can get video updates and have um, you know all of the proper metrics and places in in the capital stack. It just makes a lot of sense. So in the next five ten years, we're going to see you know the markets in which we've been investing in. They're already growing in population, but technology is helping change that and drive that too. Sure. And and for for others out there that are you know looking to get into real estate tech, what kind of advice would you give them? You know, when building um, a platform you know, or, or something, some, something similar to yours? What I've learned in business, is that there's a couple things. Uh, first of all, follow the money backwards. Uh, look at how the flow of capital is being uh, currently allocated inside of any industry and see where automation with new technology can be most disruptive. Don't guess, co-create. Um, find a company in the space that you can partner with to build a new venture or that would be a client or uh, that would pay you to build it at a discount and then you own it, you know, get creative but the last thing you know and, and this is the lean startup methodology in essence uh, which uh, I, I i love that uh, methodology but you you just don't spend years building something in a black hole and hope for the best you definitely want to make sure it's practical and that there's a market that's viable for it sure sure great advice and you know, I'm always interested in um, you know co-founder dynamics. Um, how do you how do each of you um, come to decisions, and and you know maybe where where you have a division of labor? Well, we have, we have a beautiful complementary skill set. I think. Yeah. So it's not really like we we aren't trying to vie for decision making authority on things that you know we recognize each other has the skill set for. Yeah, we definitely have our unique, as Lane mentioned, just complementary, very different, um, and just being, you know, open, having the right coming back to the people. I think just the character too. I think is is really making it easy just to have conversations, um, operating in terms of investing. It just it's always kind of just flow, and I don't. It's tough to explain, but we look for that and that same type of character and all of our operating partners and, um, you know, and our investors as well, having, you know, those are certain things that, you know, we just enjoy 
speaking to other folks and just being transparent and honest and open, that, that's just really that helpful and really important to us. And, and I've found in my career that frustration, anger, resentment, bitterness, all these negative emotions and feelings that come from working from other people are, are almost always the byproduct of unmet expectations. And so Josh and I are pretty good at setting expectations with each other properly. And, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're going to fall on our swords sometimes and, and make mistakes, but uh, we have an ownership mentality and that uh, I think builds mutual respect for one another. That's great. That's really good to hear. Uh, so thinking, you know, bigger picture, um, do you guys have any, any take on or predictions on, you know, maybe the next five to 10 years, um, you know, and where real estate tech is headed and, uh, you know, opportunities that the market uh, might present? Well, I'll talk the tech side. I think title companies, mortgage companies, like a lot of these are on their way out. Uh, it's going to take regulatory changes, but like we, we have blockchain technology that creates trust between two parties who wouldn't otherwise trust themselves with no intermediary involved. Uh, and that's where I see blockchain as being the most valuable when you use it in those scenarios. So you don't need third parties to do a lot of what we've been doing uh, with, with third parties, notaries and, and whatnot. So I'm excited. And I, I think if I was um, doing just a pure technology play without the, the fund, I would be looking at disrupting brokerages, mortgage companies, title companies. Those are all going through a lot of change right now. Josh, what do you think market opportunities are? I mean, more from an economic perspective and, and just understanding where we are in the cycle and knowing historically, this is probably one of the longest bull runs that we've seen in just the, the in the history of, of you know tracking the economic cycle and especially in real estate. But you really have to think of that in market by market. And when we are investing in the Midwest and Southeast, they're growing markets, but you have not seen the valuations. And I mentioned this a bit earlier that really rise as much as you've seen as on the coast. So 75% of all investment dollars goes to three states and it's New York, California, and Massachusetts. And we think over the next five to 10 years, that's really going to be dispersed more as technology has allowed Apple or Google to be created in a garage in Cincinnati, Ohio, or um, you know Detroit, Michigan, as opposed to Palo Alto. So, uh, right. Just because of the, the home prices are, are so astronomical, you can't necessarily live in in these areas on the coast, and um, you know or at least live there for very long. <laughs> right. Um, so we're, we're you know trying to predict and obviously that's a tricky situation too but we do feel that it's a bit bifurcated there's two different cycles and on the coast I think it it's accurate I think we are late in the in the cycle and maybe we do go into extra innings if you will use that baseball analogy that gets used a lot that we we couldn't have a sustained period of economic growth um, but you know I think it's going to be pockets by pockets and market by market and we like to say that we're still buying um, you know value and having that cash flow early and often we're also taking on less leverage and debt just and the anticipation of that um, economic cycle having that let's say sideways or reverse trend because you know and just 
my experience, especially working at Moody's through the you know global financial crisis, is that debt and you know debt credit levels become a new normal when you have systemic risk. So everything mm -hmm. thinks normal is normal until it's not. So we are taking a less normal leverage approach, which we feel that you know in times and that could be difficult in five to ten years, which it's likely that there will be. Whether or not we can predict it in year one or year nine or ten, we, we're ready for that. And um, if each of you were to give uh, last words of advice to up-and-coming fintech entrepreneurs, uh, what would that be? Uh, well, I, I, I touched on it earlier, but um, you know, follow the money backwards. Um, the world is rubber is another another way of looking at things. You know, just because someone says it can't be done doesn't mean you can't challenge it. Um, but but also, um, you know, when it, it comes to going out there, find somebody who compliments you to build a business. I think you'll be more successful. Yeah, and I would really echo that the people I think are you know make the process and and everything you know worth it. It's, times get good and bad, and you want to make sure that the the character of the partners and everyone and that you're being transparent and I think that's extremely important. You don't always need resources, you need resourcefulness and uh, if you you think you need money to start your company, what are you going to use the money for? Maybe you can find people who will help you for equity that would have normally charged you money and it depends on the caliber of the people you, you bring around you. You know, people want to work with other smart, motivated, highly, you know, ethical people and uh, it's usually easier to build a company with people like that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, guys, it was uh, it was a real pleasure. Uh, Lane and, and Josh, thanks so much for, for being on the podcast today. Um, where can people find more out about you? You know, www.activatedcapital.com. All right, fantastic. Well, guys, thanks so much for, uh, for being on our show today and uh, have a great rest of the week. Thank you for listening to the FinTech Podcast, sponsored by True North. You can find True North at www.truenorth.co.